Last week, we began a 10-week sermon series on Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And we did the work of introducing that letter last week. And we are saying about this letter that there was no particular event which motivated Paul's correspondence. There's no heresy Paul is addressing, per se. No squabble he seeks to squash. Instead, his is a letter motivated by love and concern for a people who were experiencing much the same thing he was. You see, when Paul wrote Ephesians, he was a prisoner awaiting trial. In 620, he calls himself an ambassador in chains, and he coveted prayer, even begging the Ephesians for it, that he might be able to remain true to Jesus Christ despite the immense pressure being applied on him to compromise his faith and violate his own conscience in order to preserve his own life, or at least his own happiness and comfort, to go along in order to get along, as it were. And the Christians in Ephesus were experiencing the same sorts of pressure. We mentioned last week that the city of Ephesus was, as one scholar describes it, obsessed with demons and magic and was saturated with idolatry, particularly the worship of the fertility goddess Diana. Her temple was an attraction of Ephesus that drew visitors from all over the Greco-Roman world, and the industry built up around it was a primary source of income for that city. And to speak against Diana, therefore, to call her a fake, as the Christians did, was an affront to the entire city. To speak against Diana was to court persecution. When it came to Diana, the culture told Christians to be quiet and they'll be tolerated. When it came to worshiping the Roman emperor, though, and his family, silence was insufficient. The citizens of Ephesus were forced to participate in worship of the emperor, even if it was merely passive observance. One scholar points out that the imperial cult, as this emperor worship was called, was a prominent feature of life at all societal levels in Asia, during the latter half of the first century, but Ephesus was an especially important center. And that scholar then goes to show how time itself was turned into a tool of oppression and propaganda for the imperial cult. The calendar was reordered around the life of the emperor so that the mere act of living and breathing, counting the days as they passed, became a celebration of the emperor's life. My own birth month, August, still derives its name from Augustus, the emperor. But it no longer carries the weight for us that it did for those who were living while he was actually in power. One scholar explains the message that this manipulation of the calendar would have sent to those who were living under the reign of Augustus. The realignment of Asia's calendars, he writes, was not presented as a pragmatic proposal because pragmatism was not the paramount issue. The issue was the meaning of time. It was argued that the time, that time had been determined by the birth and achievements of Augustus the emperor. He had saved the world from itself, ending warfare and returning order and conformity. The beginning of the year and the beginning of each month were to become a commemoration of his birth. 
Augustus would make sense of time. The fundamental goal of the imperial cult was to communicate to the populace that the rule of the imperial household was eternal. These were the waters that the Ephesian Christians were swimming in. There was a constant implicit pressure on them, woven into time itself and printed on the coins jingling in their pockets to acknowledge Augustus as both God and King, as Savior even. Because Augustus had the power to make your life miserable, should you believe anything different. There were social consequences for insisting instead that time should actually be ordered around Jesus Christ, that Jesus is the God of gods and the King of kings, the only Savior. Yet this is the very thing that Jesus demands of us. The first of the Ten Commandments is that we shall have no other gods before or alongside of him. And so the Ephesian Christians were daily weighing how to live in Ephesus and provide for their families while still remaining faithful to Jesus and to his truth. They were daily having to search their own consciences and identify boundaries that they were unwilling to cross in order to keep their jobs or friends. At what point do you become unfaithful to Jesus and to his truth? That's a blurry line in a world that applies constant pressure to go along in order to get along. And the Apostle Paul, experiencing this same pressure himself as a prisoner in jail, wrote his letter to help these Christians navigate this world where the ground upon which they had to stand felt as though it was rapidly shrinking. A confrontation with the culture felt imminent. And Paul was preparing the Ephesians how to honestly and faithfully live through it. And he begins this work of encouragement in the opening benediction of verses 3 through 14, which Dree read for you earlier. These 12 verses, which are actually a single sentence in the Greek, these 12 verses are a blessing spoken towards God for what he has done for his children, for Christians. Benedictions like this were typical at the beginning of a letter, but this one is unusual for its length and for its consistent emphasis on blessing God from beginning to end. Most benedictions were much shorter, and the longer ones, scholars point out, typically begin as benediction, but morph into something else, like an intercessory prayer or a confession of sin. This one does not. Verse 3 opens with, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and closes in verse 14 with a word of praise for God's glorious grace. The consistent emphasis across these 12 verses is praise for how God has freely, graciously, and generously acted towards sinners. And Paul begins this way. He begins his letter this way. Because he's trying to locate the Ephesian Christians within God's grand narrative of redemption. He is trying to give them an identity, a sense of themselves as they are related to God that transcends the pressures of the moment in which they live. He's trying to assure their souls with a sense of security in God so that as they navigate life in Ephesus, they don't have to be concerned with their own preservation or future prospects. Paul knows that only those who are convinced of their eternal and unmerited position in Christ will be able to respond appropriately and faithfully to the world around them. 
That was true of the Ephesian Christians, and that is true of us as well. Only those who are convinced of their eternal and unmerited position in Christ will be able to respond appropriately and faithfully to the world around them. So what does Paul say that God has done for Christians in these 12 verses? We'll try to draw from all 12 verses and put together a cohesive picture of the benefits that Christians freely receive from God. And our picture of the Christian begins with verse 7, where we are told that God redeems Christians and forgives their sins. And this word redemption has associations with slavery. Redemption is when a slave's freedom is purchased. We were slaves, Paul is telling us. Slaves not to some human being, although that has certainly been true of not a few Christians throughout history, but slaves to sin, a slavery that is true of all human beings, whether privileged or poor, powerful or vulnerable. As slaves to sin, we were subject to the influence of sin, unable to disobey its, its orders as it commanded our desires and led us into self-destruction. But God changes all of that through redemption. He forgives us our sin, and he makes us capable of resisting it, of ordering our lives according to his truth, and thereby flourishing in this world. He redeems us. But it was not enough for him to merely forgive us and redeem us. He also adopts Christians as his own children. He's not satisfied with an acquaintance, but desires the stronger bond of kinship. Paul says in verse 5 that we were predestined for adoption as sons. And with this adoption, the security of our relationship with God increases. We're drawn closer to him from slaves to free people to sons and daughters of the living God. And as God's children, Paul says in verse 11, that we are promised an inheritance. We're made heirs. Having once been the property of sin, we now live with the promise that we will possess everything. We will inherit a world made new, a kingdom where there are no enemies to fear, a world in which there is no scarcity or animosity or decadence, a mind that is free of confusion and a body that is free of corruption. Ours is an inheritance of more value than anything that can be purchased in this world. And to drive away the disbelief that accompanies such a promise as grand and, and wonderful as this, that may seem too good to be true, God has given us the Holy Spirit, who is, as Paul says in verse 14, the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Scholars point out that the use of guarantee to describe the Holy Spirit was intended to resonate in the minds of Paul's original audience, because as one scholar writes, when Paul wrote Ephesians, erabon, or guarantee, was a term used in Greek legal custom for an amount of money that someone who wanted a service performed paid to, the, paid to the person who would provide the service. It was an amount smaller than the total cost of the service and functioned as a guarantee that the full amount would be paid once the service was rendered. In other words, the Holy Spirit is God's down payment 
indicating that more, even more than the Holy Spirit living within you is coming. And But until then, God allows the riches of our future inheritance to bleed into this present life, into this side of eternity, in order to further increase our confidence about our position in Him and the prospects of our own future. In this life, with the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, we catch glimpses of the goodness that awaits us as the Holy Spirit works now to make us more holy and blameless, which is the ultimate end toward which God is moving us, according to verse 4. We were chosen to be holy and blameless, and the Holy Spirit increases our confidence in God's choice of us by giving us flashes and, and glimpses of our end come early. When through repentance and amendment of life, he makes us more holy and blameless day by day and year by year on this side of eternity. God does all of this for his children. But it begs the question, what we have done to deserve this forgiveness and redemption, adoption, the promise of an inheritance and the Holy Spirit living in us on this side of eternity. What have we done to deserve all these things? And the resounding answer, according to Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, is absolutely nothing. These gifts are graciously given. They are unmerited, free. They are not conditional upon any good or bad thing you might do or have done. In fact, Paul says in verse 4 that God made the decision to show such kindness to sinners before the foundation of the world. Verse 4 says that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, which means that we have done nothing to deserve any of this kindness. There's no room for boasting or haughtiness. If we boast in anything, it can only be his immense grace. His eternal plan of salvation was motivated only by love. Verse 5 says that in love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. He loved his enemies and even adopted us as his children. And he did all of this through Jesus Christ, his true son. He treated his real son like an enemy by abandoning him while he was dying on the cross and ignoring his drowning calls for help. So that those of us who are God's enemies might be made his sons and daughters. It was a plan that had been laid out before the foundation of the world, but fulfilled in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago. All the blessings that are ours, every one of them, are ours in Jesus. He traded places with us on the cross so that our lives might be hidden in his when he burst forth from the grave and rose to new and eternal life. As long as he is alive, and he will live forever because he has defeated death. As long as he is alive, we can be confident that all the gracious benefits that Paul lists in, verse 12, in these 12 verses are ours, regardless of what the world may do to us. They are ours because we are in Christ through faith. And every one of these benefits were promised to us in him. Verse 3, we were blessed in Christ. Verse 4, we were chosen in Him. Verse 5, 
we were predestined for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Verse 6, we were blessed with grace in the beloved, who is Jesus Christ. Verse 7, in him we have redemption, and our redemption is through his blood. Verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance. Verse 13, in him we are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. As long as he is alive and we are in him, then all the blessings of God are ours. The world may kill us, but death only means an, eternal, an, an early inheritance of these wondrous gifts. And you can see now why Paul started here, can't you? The security and richness of our position in Christ frees a person up to respond appropriately to the world because we no longer have to think about our own preservation. We've been secure in Christ before the foundation of the world, and our position in him will stretch forth into all eternity. And if your past and your future are known and are sure, then you can act boldly and humbly in the present. You know, there's a place in John's telling of the Last Supper, right before Jesus, the, the Messiah and the Son of God, strips down to perform the meanest task reserved for the lowliest of servants before he strips down to wash the disciples' feet. John says this, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, and that he had come from God, and that he was going back to God, rose from supper, laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Knowing that he had come from God, and that he was going back to God, was what freed him up to perform such a scandalously humble task. It's because he knew he, who he was, that he was to inherit all things. He knew where he had been and where he was going that he was able to do this. And Paul is trying to get the Ephesian Christians, he's trying to get you and me to have the same kind of confidence, the same boldness, the same humility that Jesus possessed. If you know what you are, who you are, whose you are, and what your future is guaranteed to be, then you can resist any amount of cultural pressure to violate your conscience or participate in the perpetuation of cultural lies, regardless of the cost to your career or reputation. The Ephesians' experience of, of pressure was subtle. The pressure to participate in the imperial cult by merely following the calendar, by organizing their lives around Augustus rather than Jesus Christ. And this meant that they were participating in a cult that had no basis in reality. Augustus was not savior, Jesus is. Augustus did not bring order to the world, Jesus did. Augustus's birth was not good tidings for the world, Jesus's was. And so resistance was necessary, and Christians paid dearly for it. But they were true to the truth of Jesus Christ and to the world he created. And we can learn from this, because there's a similarly subtle yet powerful pressure that our culture has placed upon Christians and its creation of, of new words and the redefinition of old ones when it comes to sex and gender. We're given newly invented pronouns to use. We're asked, even pressured, to use words like cisgender when the use of such a word is an implicit acceptance of the idea that sex and gender are separate realities, with the former assigned at birth and the later the product of self-determination. 
Even the Supreme Court of the United States has now widely expanded the definition of sex and accommodated the sort of cultural trends that view the word normal with disgust. We've turned G.K. Chesterton into a prophet. Allegedly, although it is very Chestertonian, he once said, the most extraordinary thing in the world is an ordinary man and an ordinary woman and their ordinary children. And he's right. Because ordinary has lost all meaning. And at some point, Christians must object to this twisting and turning of language that forces Christians to violate their consciences and participate in an ideology that is in conflict with the apparent truth of the physical world that God has created. An identity in Christ and a, and a guarantee of, uh, of future provides the confidence necessary to resist such cultural pressure, even when it comes at great loss to yourself. And at the very same time, this anchoring in Christ and his truth provides the conditions necessary for repentance, for the searching of your life to discover some complicity or some sin. The racial tensions laid bare by the recent protests across our country have caused me, and I hope you as well, to see in new ways how systemic evils are allowed to remain and operate in our country that disadvantage minorities of color in order to preserve a standard of life for the majority that assumes advantage and privilege. And seeing these things, there must be repentance. Even if it just begins by taking stock of your lifestyle and, and naming those things that you assume to be necessities, but would be unthinkable comforts to a minority group, out of the question even. Even that small act will begin to create the conditions for compassion, will open your ears and eyes to see the world afresh and begin the process of repentance, which is possible because your life is secure in Christ, your future guaranteed. You can and will identify the remnants of sin's influence in your life until the day you die. But never will the presence of lingering sin be able to separate you from Christ. He chose you and died for you while you were an enemy and a sinner. In him, you can call out your sin and admit it to your neighbor, to your spouse, to your friend, even your child, because you're secure in him. And this anchoring in Christ brings the, the confidence necessary for resistance. It creates the conditions for repentance. And at times, there's the need to resist even while you are repenting, because there's no one political party or people's movement that overlaps 100% with the kingdom of God. As Christians, we're always having to navigate muddy waters to discern the truth of Christ. We cannot align ourselves totally and without question to some program unless it is the spirit-led project of uniting heaven and earth in Jesus Christ, of extending Christ's kingdom so that earth comes to reflect what is already true in heaven. And this will mean that, that sometimes we will disagree with even the people who have helped us to see the need for repentance in the first place. But whether resisting or repenting, this anchoring in Christ demands that we do it all in humility. Because what do you have that you did not freely receive as a gift? Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 says absolutely nothing. You were chosen before the foundation of the world. Therefore, if you resist, you must do so without violence or hatred in your heart. Because Jesus drew near to us while we were still enemies in love and brought the rebellious into God's family. 
And if you repent, you must do so without arrogance or pride, swiftly pivoting to condemn those who are stuck in the sin you have recently abandoned. Because it's our sin that made necessary his death. And it's by grace alone that we are redeemed, forgiven, adopted, promised an inheritance, and filled with the Holy Spirit. He has done all these things for us. Paul is writing to us so that we might live in Christ, out of Christ, through Christ, with Christ. May Christ be all around us and order our lives, structure our time even, give meaning to every moment. All praise is due to God for his glorious grace through Jesus Christ forever and ever. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Let's sing this hymn of reflection together. Blessed Assurance. Blessed Assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Air of salvation, purchase of God, born of His Spirit, washed in His blood. This is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. In perfect submission, perfect delight, visions of rapture burst on my side angels descending bring from above echoes of mercy whispers of love this is my story this is my song Praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. Perfect submission. All is at rest I in my Savior Am happy and blessed Watching and waiting Looking above Filled with His goodness Lost in His love 
This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long and now Christian what do you believe I believe in God the Father Almighty maker of heaven and earth and in Jesus Christ his only son our Lord who was conceived by the Holy Ghost born of the Virgin Mary suffered under Pontius Pilate was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. And the third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Let us pray for the church and for the world. Almighty Father, we pray for your holy Catholic and apostolic church, that we may be one as you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one. Show us our sin and fill us with both determination and grace as we live in Christ. Put an end to our divisions and teach us to love one another as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Let us seek to bear the burdens of those in our congregation and community who are victims of injustice, inequality, and poverty. In your mercy, Lord. Yeah, I pray. We pray for all the leaders of your church and particularly the elders of First Presbyterian Church. Protect us from sin and pride and humble us that we might be faithful servants of your church, the world, and of Jesus Christ, our Lord. We pray that we would commit to act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with the Lord, that we would find ways to live this out in our church and community. In your mercy, Lord. Yeah, I pray. Oh God, we ask that you would bring healing to our nation surrounding the racial tension in our country. Give our governmental leaders and our people the ears to hear the disenfranchised, to see the Imago Dei in each human life. We pray that with humility, we will engage and listen to people of color, even if they share feelings and experiences that are difficult to hear. Help our leaders at the city, state, and national level to be peacemakers, doing the hard work of reconciliation, rather than peacekeepers who placate dissenting views. In your mercy, Lord. Yeah, I pray. Have compassion on those who suffer from any grief or trouble this day. On top of their physical pain, they may also bear the emotional pain of isolation, but let them not bear it alone. May, be, may Jesus be their companion. Give them a strong sense of his presence with them. Bring a swift end to the coronavirus pandemic and the additional suffering that it brings to many. In your mercy, Lord. Yeah, I pray. Lord, it is this church's desire to be your instrument in the world around us, beyond the four walls of this church. 
bless our outreach efforts that they would further the ministries where we partner with so that your name may be proclaimed and the love of Christ may would be made manifest. We specifically pray for Jake and Sarah Wade and their ministry with the For the Nations Refugee Outreach in Dallas. We pray for their work as they help refugees in the long process of adapting to life in the United States. We pray especially for their kids' summer programs that are severely altered due to spikes in the COVID cases in Dallas. Grant them wisdom to know how to share the gospel with those children while keeping their communities safe. Lord, further this ministry for your purposes and your glory. Give our church insight in ways that, we would, that you would have us partner with their efforts. In your mercy, Lord. Hear our prayer. And now, Father, together we pray as your Son, Jesus Christ, taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Sing with me as we end our service today. We are one in the Spirit. We are one in the Lord. We are one in the Spirit. We are one in the Lord. And we pray that all unity will one day be restored. And they'll know we are Christians by our love, by our love. We will walk with each other, we will walk hand in hand. We will walk with each other, we will walk hand in hand. And together we'll spread the news that God is in our land. And they'll know we are Christians by our love, by our love. Yes, they'll know we are Christians by our love. We will work with each other. We will work side by side. We will work with each other. We will work side by side. And we'll guard each man's dignity and save each man's pride. And they'll know we are Christians by our love, by our love. Yes, they'll know we are Christians by our love. All praise to the Father from whom all things come. And all praise to Christ Jesus, His only Son. And all praise to the Spirit who makes us one. And they'll know we are Christians by our love, by our love. Yes, they'll know we are Christians by our love.
Sorry about that. I was muted. First Presbyterian Church received God's blessing. And now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every, everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.